Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today our guest is Darcy Lockman, a clinical psychologist practicing in New York City. We're going to be talking about her book, All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. Welcome to the show, Darcy. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about this book and how you came to write it? Yes. So I was very surprised upon becoming a mother and, you know, partnered with a man who I met in grad school, we're both psychologists, how much of the work of having kids fell to me. So even though neither of us would have said explicitly before we had children that one of us was going to be more or less in charge, in fact, we would have said just the opposite, it kind of seemed to just work out that way. And it was really hard for me to figure out how we had gotten there or why we were having trouble getting out of that spot. And simultaneously, because I had little ki- a little kid and then little kids, I knew a lot of parents, working parents primarily, and all the women I knew kind of had found themselves in the same position, assuming they were in these egalitarian relationships, their husbands would have said so too, but then bearing really the brunt of the childcare work. So this question just uh, kind of stayed with me for so long. It really was like the most pressing question of the early years of parenting for me. Why are we still living this way? And finally, I thought, you know, I really want to dig into this question. And I used to be a journalist and I can use those skills as well as my understanding of like the academic research to really kind of try to figure out why we're all in this place that none of us would have said we wanted to be both men and women alike. It's very interesting. We came to interview you because one of our listeners at No Forbidden Questions uh, read the book and recommended it and wanted to hear from us. So shout out to her. So um, I was really glad to be made aware of it. And something that I thought was interesting was that um, from the time you studies, we see that basically you're focusing on like married or cohabitating heterosexual couples in general. Just yeah, want to clarify really that. Um, in um, uh, heterosexual relationships. So it does focus on heterosexual relationships and how, how kind of the patriarchy plays out in our personal lives in ways we wouldn't have expected. Yes, I just wanted to clarify that up front. And then also, you seem to talk about how sometimes a couple might feel okay with the division of labor, but once a child or even two children come into the mix, it's much more difficult to maintain that. Right. There's not that much that needs to be done when there are two adults living in a household. I mean, there's laundry, there's cooking, there's cleaning, but it's not, um, it's just not so laborious. So it's a lot easier not to notice if gender is kind of dictating that one person does more because it's, you know, one person can handle that stuff if they're doing a little bit more. So it may or may not be something that comes up for couples before there's just way more work to do. So I I have kind of a lot of interesting, I mean, this brings up a lot for me. I teach psychology of sex and gender to undergrads, and we talk a lot about ways that gender roles have changed over time in the U.S., and particularly um, relevant to this, I feel like, is, or the parallel that I'm making, at least, is around how while uh, men and women's sense of self or personality traits uh, have grown closer, it's grown closer because women have increased in a sense of agency rather than men increasing in sense of communion. So women have really picked up the slack on the agency side, but men are still leaving slack in the, the communal aspects, so the caregiving sides. Yes. Yeah, you, you haven't read the book, but you've quoted some of the book. <laughs> 
we've got a lot of overlap, I think, in our interests. You know, people are reading this book in um, university courses, so you should consider it for your class. But yeah, the women's self-reports, if you look over the decades, women report an increasing sense of agency over the decades. Men do not report a correspondent increasing sense of communality over the decades. So that part is clear in the research. And while women have been accepted in more traditionally male roles, for example, wanting to earn a living, um, the same has not been true for men. Like women get a little bit more leeway in terms of the gender roles that they can assume. And because we kind of elevate male traits, right, in a patriarchy and devalue feminine ones, it behooves women to step into more elevated male roles, while it does not behoove men to step into less elevated communal ones. And you see that in the kinds of work that men and women even do, like while women have moved into more traditionally male jobs, Jobs. Men have not moved into more traditionally female jobs like teaching and nursing, right? All the kind of caregiving professions. Um, something that I've been thinking about, and just to note to our listeners, we're recording this on uh, March 27th. Hopefully we can get this episode out to you by the second week of April. Um, and obviously we're living through a global pandemic with uh, COVID-19. And something that I thought was interesting in relation to this book was I've seen two uh, editorials, and there might be more coming out soon, about the struggles that working parents have right now who are able to work from home but also have their children home and not in school. And like many of them have dismissed their babysitters or nannies or family caregivers out of concern for safety, but now trying to do everything at once in the same space of their house has become very difficult. There was one in BuzzFeed called, Here's What Parents Dealing with the Coronavirus Isolation Wants You to Know, and then one in New York Times called, I Feel Like I Have Five Jobs, Moms Navigate the Pandemic. And both of these uh, articles kind of spoke to me, and I've been thinking about them in relationship to this book because that's something that my family has been thrown into Um we were having our parents watch over our son, but once the New York stay-at-home order went into place, we asked them to please stay home for, the, for their own safety. So now we have two parents working at home and one small child, and we've been juggling it, and it's been okay, but a lot of people have it rougher if they have less flexible jobs or more than one kid or a child who needs more help with schoolwork. So do you care to speak to that? I mean, I've seen those articles, and that like the headline is so telling, right? Moms are juggling five roles. It's not parents. And I, of course, am on social media and I've seen like women kind of commenting on this, how it's moms and not dads. You know, I think here's my seven-year-old who's hungry. Why don't you go get a granola bar, honey? Yay! My husband is at work right now. So, but he and he and I are switching off. So I just happen to be the one that's home right now. You know, clearly given that this is a persistent challenge in uh, male-female couples, this is a time when I think people will either rise to the occasion or not. And something, you know, in the midst of reading all these articles, my husband said to me, and this was like a weekend before homeschool had officially started, I was like kind of doing a lot of cooking and laundry and cleaning. And I was really doing it because being busy um, in that moment felt kind of soothing to me. So I wasn't feeling resentful of it. I was just doing it because I just wanted to be doing stuff. And he seems to feel like, I don't know, it doesn't feel the need to be like so active. But anyway, he said to me, you're doing everything. You you have to stop. I, I need, I'm stepping in. So it was really interesting because oftentimes, and clearly because of this book and because of life, this has been a discussion we've, we've had for years, but there was something about us both being home that made what can be more invisible 
in the day-to-day more visible. So I actually wonder if in here there's not an opportunity for men to be a little more confronted directly with how imbalanced things are in their homes. So it strikes me that while, you know, all these articles are speaking to how this is like hard for moms, there is a chance for, I think, a deeper dive in couples into like, wow, we really get a chance to see this under a microscope that we don't um, usually have the chance to see almost in like slow-mo, right? So I would wonder if, you know, again, this is like an opportunity for individual couples to really say, hey, this is so obvious now. Maybe we can talk about it in a non-defensive way and figure something else out. It's an opportunity for people to maybe take that, you know, individual approach to this kind of large societal problem. And I think one of the lines in one of the articles that really struck me was with like the thing about, I don't need more content. Like I need more people in my house, you know, because every day I see something like, oh, the nature center is putting up videos and this celebrity is reading kids books and Mo Williams is doing, I'm like, yeah, okay. But you know, you know, so it's, um, it helps somewhat, but, but, but it is, it is a difficult situation. So I just thought that that was really interesting that, you know, we had planned this interview way beforehand and that it kind of bears on the current moment. I thought, I thought was very interesting. I'm really curious how this this uh, huge change in lifestyle for us who are in kind of lockdown areas will impact domestic lifestyles and relationships. It's really fascinating. And so I had some questions. How do you think women can approach this issue either before they have kids with their partner and then like maybe afterwards to maybe change some patterns that they see that they don't like them? Are those two different approaches or is that the same conversation? Well, like I think if you really have a thorough understanding of how and why this dynamic plays out, you're in a really good position to combat it. So most of us go into child rearing very naively because how else could you go into it if you've never done it before? I'd say all of us. But the idea is sort of that forewarned is forearmed. So I kind of wrote this book in the spirit of what would I have liked to be armed with going into parenthood? Um, If my husband and I had read my book before we had kids, we would have been in a much (laughs) better position. And actually, it was interesting because one of the women who I interviewed for the book is a grad student in um, sociology, in family studies, and she started studying this stuff in undergrad. And I met her, so to speak, on Twitter when she posted an article and the headline was something like, babies don't tank women's careers, men do. And it it was about how this (laughs) division of labor was... Sorry, I need to interrupt you because we can't get a sound recording of the faces that Elizabeth and I just made (laughs) in response to the title of that article. (laughs) Wow! Yeah, like, oh, there it is. This woman posted this article and wrote back something like hard truths, but it doesn't have to be this way. That was her like comment above the article. And so I, um, I DM'd her. I was like, hey, how is it not this way for you? And she wrote back, I married a Swede. Ha ha. Someone <laughs> who was Swedish and they have better success with egalitarian uh, relationships, though still not uh, 
not perfect, but I ended up interviewing her. And what she said was she had been studying family sociology for years. She understood that this was the dynamic that pervaded in heterosexual relationships. She educated her boyfriend, then husband, about this body of literature. And together, knowing that this was the way it was going to go, they worked really hard to make sure it didn't. So even before they had kids, they were really communicative about who was doing what and was anyone feeling things were overburdening or unfair or whatever. And they really kept an eye on it. And before they had kids, they made a really good plan about what was going to happen with daycare and pickups and drop-offs and like all this detail that I never would have thought to go into because I just assumed things would work out 50-50. It never even crossed my mind that there would be anything else. So what I, what I gleaned from that and other people I talked to was that knowing like all the research and all the numbers and all the anecdotes on this allows you to kind of really face what's going to go on if you don't work hard. So you really have to work hard in the other direction to balance all this stuff that we all grow up with about who is more important, whose priorities and ambitions matter more, because it's so in the water, we don't even realize it. We really have to be attuned to that to be able to make something different happen. So that's what I hope I offer couples with all the rage is the capacity to do something differently because they know what it's going to look like if they don't. And I've heard really good stuff from couples who have read this together. You know, women tend to buy books more and this book is pink. So certainly it's <laughs> probably more women are reading, but I've definitely heard good stuff from women who've read it with their husbands. You know, men have said to me, you know, I would feel so guilty and defensive when my wife would bring stuff up. But after reading this, I don't anymore because we both just realize it's so, it's social pressures. It's not because she's a martyr. It's not because I'm a lazy, bad guy. It's all this stuff we hadn't thought about before. So I think it really like absolves couples of guilt and then lets them take responsibility. Yeah, you brought up so many good points in, in this whole thing to kind of respond to, because I think it's really funny that Sweden got mentioned in this because even with Sweden, they had to legally implement that men had to take their parental leave. Yep. And it made a huge difference. In fact, the studies show that after men take solo parental leave, they contribute more to the household. I think the studies went like five years out, five years out, like two hours more work a week than men who never had solo parental leave. So that mandatory use it or lose it, dad only leave made a huge difference in that country. We really need that in the United States because right now a lot of companies are, I think, you know, just trying to nickel and dime men out of their leave. There are a lot of companies that are playing this game with primary caregiver and secondary caregiver. And uh, we tried to work around that with my husband's company by saying, okay, well, you know, I'm going to be the primary caregiver for the first couple of months, and then I'm going to go back to work, and then he's going to be the primary caregiver. But in the policy, it says primary caregiver from date of birth or adoption. And it's it's only because legally they can't write mother or father or man or woman. So there have been some lawsuits about that. I think someone successfully uh, sued J.P. Morgan Chase and got them to change it. But I think we really need uh, policy coming from the top, or at least at the state level if we can't get it federally. We can't even get federal mandatory maternal leave. I know. Let alone. I know. Equal parental leave. But just that the policies can't be discriminatory, I think, is is just making the the problem worse almost, I think. In the United States, we tend to think about childbearing as a personal choice and not a public good. 
And of course, it is both. And interestingly, in, in some of the countries that offer really good family leave, they talk about the rights of the newborn. So it's not even about parental rights, right? It's about every newborn child is entitled to care. And that's how it's framed. It's a very different way of thinking about it. You know, we, we talk about ma- uh, maternity leave as disability, time to physically recover, not time to bond with your baby, which if we talked about paternal leave, we would be talking about bonding with the baby, not physical recovery and disability, which, of course, women need after they deliver, but it's not inclusive. Right. And also, just because I, I know a little bit about your clinical background now, I, I want to ask you, I'm curious if there have been studies around attachment uh, when there are two caregivers that are both primary in their own way or co-primary? I, I want to say no. I mean, the general consensus is that children do better with two parents than one because they can it, like internalize different types of relationships with different personality styles, and they can see that there's more than one way of being in the world. But the kind of nuanced thing you're talking about hasn't been studied that I know of um, in terms of the attachment research. There are studies about um, children and the way they kind of express their gender identity and egalitarian ideals, depending on whether they're growing up in a more traditional or more egalitarian household. And I know at least one of those studies has found that boys who grow up in, a, in egalitarian homes where dads are involved with babies show as much of an interest as girls in babies and children who grow up in a more traditional home where the father is not as involved with the children, the boys will at least express less interest in babies because they're, you know, kind of like behaving more like their father. There's also an interesting study that found that children, male or female, internalize their father's gender kind of ideals rather than their mothers. So even if the mother is more egalitarian and the father is more conservative, both boys and girls will internalize his ideas. Oh, I need to read that because <laughs> that, that's something that goes against my textbook. <laughs> I can definitely end up now selling this book to myself as not pleasure reading, but actually required reading for me. I hope it's pleasure reading too. It's like kind of, it's got tons of studies, but also lots of anecdotes. I wanted it to be a fun read as well as like packed with good info. Yeah, well, what a is. what a good uh, fit for a book like that as somebody with both a journalism and a research background. Like, uh, I'm really excited to dive in, and I'm so sorry I hadn't read it before the interview. No apologies. I'm glad you're excited. I think that's very interesting what you said about um, children internalizing their their father's gender roles, and and I think just watching the kids that I know how that can kind of be encouraged or quashed. Like, I know. Some little boys who, when they got a younger brother or a sister, wanted to start playing with baby dolls, you know, and the parents were fine with it and they got him one, but his grandparents were just shocked and scandalized. And it's quite disturbing to me the amount that we gender police toddlers like it's right. Peer pressure, too. There are tons of good um, studies in classrooms. Boys and girls choose the toys they play with based on who's watching. Um, the peers are watching. They're much more likely to choose like gender appropriate in quotes toys than if they're playing when when they think nobody is watching. You know that some like there's a researcher watching through a mirror, but if there are no other kids right. around, they're much more flexible in their toy choices. Yeah, that's something like seventy percent of their time is with gender neutral toys when unobserved. It's, it's fascinating to me on so many levels um, the way that gender development occurs for children. You know, we're, we're using a very social learning theory approach. <laughs> for sure. 
as humans, like we're social creatures. So we're trying to figure out from very early on what groups we belong to and how to behave accordingly. Hmm, that's some schema theory, too. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, mean, I can't help it. I'm like just about to give an exam on this right now to my students. <laughs> right. You're a very good uh, grad student. <laughs> no, it, it, it's good. It seems like this episode is shaping up to be a good uh, theory and practice and anecdote and practical info all in one, which is is uh, what we hope to do. Is there a way that, um, I guess, close friends or extended family members can help a couple to navigate this issue? I don't know. You know, I, I actually don't think so. I think we're so sensitive to our peers once we're in school and our teachers and, you know, even peers and teachers with the best intentions. This is the system that we live under. You know, I remember my kids when they were little would say things to me like, well, boys don't wear dresses. And I found myself starting so many sentences with, well, in our culture, you know, that tends to be true. But it's right. So it's like, how do we when our kids start making statements like that, how do we talk to them about it. And I had a lot of fun doing that because it caused me to reflect more about stuff too. They, God, they still, they're like, mom, why do you put on makeup? Right. It's like, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> it is kind of weird. That was the first question that I had gotten from my son that I didn't have like a good answer for. Here's a good answer. Well, in our culture, that's what I said. I said, some people like to put it on their face. A lot of women like it. Some men like it too. You know, it, it really depends. Uh, but, but you know, it, it, it shocked me. And and that's an, that's a good tip though in our culture dot 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 because you know generally when I get those kind of generalizations that three year olds make like all boys do this all girls do this I'm, I usually just start with a contradiction like no anyone can do that but that's that's an interesting thing to get them to think about our culture as a specific thing apart from you know an objective. Reality. Yeah, it's not like the natural order of things. And actually, one of the things I try to do in, in the book is debunk a lot of our myths about biology mm -hmm. and how all of this is just sort of bio biologically inevitable, because people tend to fall back on that when they want to not think about it too much. But actually, you know, there's not much research that supports that biologically women should do more homework help and lunch preparation than men. And I get into a lot more detail about it in the book, looking at primate studies and all sorts of stuff. But um, this is not primarily a biological thing. It's a cultural thing. You know, women women doing more uh, domestic labor. Yeah, it reminds me of that study that when one man at a company takes their full paternity leave after that, like many, many more will follow. Like you just need somebody to break the dam. And then sometimes people will lead by example. But Melinda Gates in her book so she had a book that came out right around when mine did and i can't remember what it was called she so she and bill had this problem in their marriage she felt like she was doing too much and it was so interesting to read that because i thought like a certain amount of money a lot would shield you from such problems but now we know it happened in the gates marriage so no amount of money shields you from this problem but she said you know they kind of worked things out and he started taking the kids to school sometimes and once he started taking the kids to school, the other mothers apparently in the area started saying to their husbands, if Bill Gates can take his kids to school, so can you. So yes. kind of goes, right? it was such a nice um, explanation of that social contagion kind of thing. That's something this book has, is, you know, practical advice. Definitely like reading it and talking about it is, is a good idea in preparation of or, you know, while you're in the midst of it. 
one thing that I keep kind of coming back to is that men are much more harshly punished for breaking gender norms, or at least in certain ways. Male children are, I think, male adults less so. But male children showing more feminine traits are more likely to receive harsher feedback because, depending on your theory, it violates the social role that we expect for them and their status and it lowers their status in ways that make us uncomfortable. And so I'm curious because even in our discussion of this, we're talking about how, yes, the book is pink. Women are more likely to buy it. Women can use this to help plan how to make sure that their husbands aren't ignoring these standardized roles. But does your book go into it all how we can get men more motivated to see these things or what it might be like if a man was like, I want to have a kid and I'm scared that I'm going to do this thing that I see every other dude do. I really want to be a good dad. My dad didn't do anything in my life and I really don't want to be like him, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it it has to come down to like confronting your own privilege because men are applauded for, you know, watching their kids while it's just expected of women. You know, I got a great email that I still remember from a guy saying, I always knew this was true, but everyone's always telling me what a great dad I am. So I was kind of able to like shove my sense that I wasn't doing nearly as much as my wife in the background. Thank you for articulating this because I want to do better. And it was like, it was such a heartening email to get. And I heard heard stuff like that from men much more than I would have expected to. Uh, You know, there was a great op-ed in the Times that I actually put in the book by a professor at Emory named George Yancey, I think. And I think the title of the op-ed was I'm a Sexist. And it was, you know, he acknowledges in the op-ed how he feels he deserves to be thanked whenever he cooks dinner or washes the dishes or whatever. Um, And he just really kind of interrogates his own sexism. And it's so nice to read a man so openly saying that, you know, it's like, thank you. Yes. Like we all know this is going on. And when we're in denial about it, it makes it worse. It's like this gaslighting thing. So I think men who want to really look at that, you know, how they feel like it really is there. Cause I think a lot of men without kind of explicitly articulating it to themselves do feel like, you know, a lot of this is really on mom and I'm here to help out. I'll do whatever she asks but kind of don't take on that co-managing or co-leadership role in the home. Yeah, it's interesting because at the time that we're having this conversation uh, for recording, I'm kind of in a period of a lot of exploration around white fragility. And so it's uh, really nice to kind of see the parallels in male fragility or masculine fragility. I don't know what if there's a... I think male fragility is a good way to see it in the same way that you would talk about white fragility. And this is actually something that crosses like race and ethnic lines. It's interesting because African-American men tend to be more liberal in their egalitarian values, Mm -hmm. uh, liberal than whites who are more liberal than Hispanics, like group wise. But that's all about attitudes. And Attitudes, believe it or not, do not predict behavior. So while attitudes tend to be more liberal in certain communities, the behaviors don't really translate. So this is sort of a cross-economic, cross-social class, Mm. cross-social phenomenon, this like male privilege in relation to women. 
I think that's very interesting that you talked about that attitude is different than behavior because like right off the top of my head, I can think of men that I know that espouse certain sexist things but are very involved fathers. And I've heard lots of anecdotes about men who claim to be feminist and egalitarian and don't do anything. So that's a really interesting contradiction. It shows up a bit in working class couples who will talk about the man wearing the pants, like to make a blanket statement about a group, which obviously you can't do. But but because they'll often have like shift work with their wives, for example, they will be more involved in the caretaking of their kids. So that's kind of an, an interesting side note as well. And the thing about the guy saying, like, I'm a sexist and I want to be thanked for making dinner, it to me, that almost perverts a strategy that really works in my family. And I think the way that we got through part of the newborn stage with my son is just to constantly be thanking each other for little things like, oh, thank you for changing the, but I thank my husband and he thanks me for cooking dinner, for changing, for giving the kid a bath, things like that. So like, to me, that's like a nice small kindness and to, but to be like, well, I deserve it. I'm like, what? That's kind of a, an exaggeration. It's fascinating to bring up also the um, attitudes and behavior disconnect as it fits into these cultural archetypes of working class man and how, for some reason, the first thing that came to my mind was like married with children, which is probably just kind of revealing of my age more than anything else. <laughs> but um, I feel like the thing that comes to mind is that even though we know that that's true from research, that's not true of what we see in our portrayals. Yeah, I will say, though, division of labor is not it's not like it's equal among working class couples. So the time use diaries show that um, on average, women do about 65 percent of the child care labor and men about 35 percent. And if men are unemployed and earning no income and women are the um, the only breadwinner in the home, that's when we get closest to parity. But even that earnings arrangement doesn't equal out time-wise. Women are still doing more, even when they are the only earners. So I don't want to say like, you know, working class families have um, have done a much better job of this. I don't know, you know, again, I, I can't speak that broadly. I'm sure some have, but like overall, the division of labor is 65-35 in all couples, like about that in all couples, all heterosexual couples with kids in the home. Right. I'm sorry, dual earner heterosexual couples, 65-35 is the breakdown. Right. And does the, the book speak at all to differences for same-sex couples and division of labor? Yeah, I mean, there. I looked at what research there was. Um, there's not a ton. There, there's anecdote and journalistic articles. One piece of research that always stands out for me, which I found both um, super interesting and also it kind of like makes sense, is that of all gendered configurations of couples, lesbians co-parent most harmoniously. And the reason that finding makes some sense to me is that as girls, we are kind of raised with the value of thinking about others' needs quite a lot. And boys are not raised with that value. So whether or not you are straight or gay, you're still raised either a boy or a girl. So when you have two girls who grew up to be two women who are partnered, they're going to be thinking about each other's needs um, and what each other has done and lightening the other's load more than uh, a man might. So whether you have two men or a man and a woman, it, it still plays out. But I think that's the most interesting piece of the liter of the research literature on gay couples that I came across. But of course, division of labor is an issue for all couples, not just straight couples. 
it seems that when there are not the easy gendered assumptions to fall back on, more discussion is had, and that is useful. Also, just as an aside, the reason that we're using such binary gendered language is because that's what the research is on, and there's not a lot of research. So to make definitive statements about non-binary people in relationships would be speculative. Right, totally. I mean, I, I set out to write about sexism in heterosexual couples, cisgendered heterosexual couples. So the book has that, that narrow purview, certainly. I think this actually dovetails really nicely with the questions that we have about gender socialization and how we do have these really inflexible roles for children and that that that, um, you know, this kind of sprouted out of the question around how to get the men involved or how patriarchy hurts the men too relates to this particular area where men need a a leader uh, to see Bill Gates dropping his kids off at school in order to give them permission. Karen, I have a really good book for you. Um, Carol Gilligan's new book. Have you seen it? Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Mm Mm-hmm. Have you read it? I haven't read it yet, no. It's right up your alley, and it's really good. I highly recommend it. She talks about the ways that that girls and boys deal with loss, and she doesn't mean, like, loss by death, but she means by loss of, like, part of their personhood when they maneuver themselves into their gendered roles. Girls by compulsive caretaking and boys by compulsive emotional detachment. So it's kind of like an attachment theory perspective on loss and and patriarchy. And patriarchy persists because this is the way we have come to accept and deal with the loss of being fuller selves in a society Mm -hmm. where we're supposed to not be. I'm not doing a very good job of articulating what she says. But you're doing a really good job of getting me interested in it. (laughs) Also, so I do an exercise um, with my students at the beginning of talking about what gender is. And I ask, you know, when was the first time you realized you were a girl or boy or both or neither, uh, or something not covered by the way the question is worded. <laughs> and uh, and I do this because it's, I always know that this is what's going to happen, is everyone always says something like, when my mom told me I couldn't wear a skirt because I'm a boy when my mom told me I had to watch my older brother because I'm the girl. It's almost always something where it's a prescriptive kind of, you cannot do this because you are this gender. I haven't read this in a long time, Karen, maybe you have, but that um, kids don't have gender constancy for the first few years of their lives. Constancy meaning they don't know, and I'm going to use the the terms from the research, they don't know. That they're a girl and they will always be a girl and only be a girl or that they're a boy and they will always and only be a boy. Um, and I remember when I was in grad school, a friend of mine had like a three year old daughter and she had just had a baby boy. And I was playing with the little girl. She, she was three or four. And she said to me, she started a sentence with when I used to be a boy. And I don't remember what the rest of the sentence was. But it really struck me because I was in this gender class at the time learning about this concept of um, gender constancy and how kids don't develop it until they're like a certain age. It's interesting, right? Because they, until a certain point, kids think that sometimes they're a boy and sometimes they're a girl. Mm-hmm. And maybe that really speaks more to like how we dichotomize these things. Because like if you think you used to be a boy because you used to like to play soccer, 
I don't know, like, I don't know what it is that makes kids think they used to be a boy, but because we have these like these binaries that are so rigid and arbitrary. Do you know this research, Karen? Uh, yeah, I do. And so I think, you know, I, I had it taught to me in very much the same way that's like leaving like the trans aspect of it out of the conversation. And so I do kind of want to put inject that in because I think that that adds a lot of interesting extra data in there to, to put together like a little theory. So um, one of the things that I think is interesting from the, the research on trans children uh, and their sense of gender identity and gender constancy is that generally the gender identity development follows the same milestones that cisgender children follow. And so you do see a persistent and constant gender once trans children reach gender constancy as a developmental stage. And so what's really fascinating about that, and it, it's consistent, it's persistent. I think the also for treatment, there's like a little uh, mnemonic, which is like consistent, persistent, and insistent. That's how you know when it's time to start like socially transitioning and things like that in terms of treatment recommendations. And I'm not bringing this whole conversation to treatment recommendations. But anyway, um, just the the addition of the gender constancy does appear to happen in developmental stages. Similarly, like for trans children as it does for cisgender children. That's really interesting. And it leads me to another question, which is so far afield from what we're talking about. But like, why do we have to have gender constancy? Like, is gender constancy even a, like a, a requirement we place arbitrarily on everybody? Right. And so there's also a really fun, uh, if you want to go down the, like, even looking at the trans research is extremely binary trans. So there are people who are non-binary. There are people who are gender fluid. There are people who are agender in their gender identity. And so what's really interesting to me is my suspicion is that people have had these experiences of gender for a very long time and we've only kind of just come as a society to have a nice little label for it other than maybe tomboy or something you know or, or other kinds of labels that we have for gender non-conforming folks but I think if we as a society took gender fluidity or a gender or non-binary people seriously, I think it would really be interesting in terms of how it would relate to this particular patriarchal structure of parenting. Yeah, agreed. So welcome to this uh, episode of Feminist Coffee Hour, where two academics have weird questions of, informed by research rabbit holes. <laughs> it's, it's great. Like, this, it's really interesting. Now you're giving us ideas for future shows. So thank you. Oh, good. <laughs> Where can people find more about you, Darcy, online? Really, I mean, the more about me is just the book, I think. Yes, buy the book. Which can be found anywhere you buy books, which this day is, uh, in this in this moment, is probably online. <laughs> is it being sold directly by the publisher anywhere? Uh, it's HarperCollins. I don't know if they sell directly from their website, but you can get it on indie books. You can get it from your local 
bookstores website or from Barnes and Noble and when everything opens. Oh, it's also at the libraries when they're back open. So yeah, um, it's available wherever books are sold. Many independent bookstores are still shipping books to people's homes and you can buy uh, eBooks or borrow them for your library from the big publishers, or you can get eBooks sometimes from a smaller publisher a smaller bookstore. So it's also an audio book if anyone wants to listen to it. You can find me online at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, Karen, U-H, Karen. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.